All right, so yeah, find your way to the book of Daniel, which is right after the book of Ezekiel. Much shorter book than Ezekiel. Only 12 chapters. We'll see how far we get tonight. And uh, before I forget to tell you, we will not have midweek next week because I will be traveling for a conference in Philadelphia at the... Westminster Theological Seminary. Nice. Very nice. Oh, it is Ken. Hello, Barbara. Ken. Hello. How are you, sir? And Barbara. Hello, Barb. We knew it. I knew you would be here. You knew it? We knew it. I'm sure Barbara and Ken will show up. We'll get back in there. I don't care. Okay, we're going to go. How are you? I don't want to get stuck in here. So, Barb, did you escape the plague? We want some of your immunities. That's great. How is that possible? God's will. And the kid was chewing on me and sneezing on me and everything. And Mike too. He got it when I had it twice. Oh, it's great. I only got it once. Back when it was cool, 2020. Oh, Paul got it. What's it done? What? Badge of courage. Yeah. So, book of Daniel. Um, maybe some thoughts before we dig into the book of Daniel. What comes to mind when we think of this book? Like, we all have our perceptions, maybe, of books of the Bible. Like, if you think about Genesis, you think about creation, you think about Adam and Eve or something. Yeah, okay, so Lion's Den. <laughs> this is fun. We'll do word association with the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. So, we've got Lion's Den. Real, real little. Yeah? It's one of the first sermons I really remember. I remember the minister. He was short and had a real deep voice. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and I was five or six. And then he stood on the edge of the pulpit. And he, Daniel! Shag! <laughs> and he, I remember that shouting. So he was it, acting it out? Oh, yeah. He looked over the edge of the pulpit and just shouted. Wow. You know? Could he see you over the edge of the pulpit? <laughs> Is that short? Well, he, Reverend Koistra, he wasn't, he wasn't that, wasn't that tall. He had a fiery voice. Okay. So what else? Word association when we think of the book of Daniel. Son of man. Son of man. Okay, definitely. Yeah, chapter 7. Maybe we'll get there. A lot of dreams and interpretations. Yes. A lot of dreams and interpretations. Yeah, yeah two oh, main see. dreams and interpretations, and there's a, one or two more, but two of the big ones, two. yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of another book that is uh, maybe not that easy to understand, and there's a lot of different interpretations about, especially the dreams, mm -hmm. and things like the weeks and the days and everything else, and what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so Daniel, but it's it's a manageable book. Again, really compared to where we have been with Jeremiah and then uh, Ezekiel, a much more manageable book of 12 chapters. So, yeah, so the author is Daniel, but of course you will find other people who will argue with that. Um, anybody know what Daniel means? 
what the what the name Daniel means? God is my judge. God is my judge. Exactly. God is my judge. Wendy online, her thought was the handwriting on the wall, which is also another very good um, word association. Thank you, Wendy, for that. Hello, Auntie No. Good to see you. As far as the date that we're dealing with, uh, we're dealing with around 600. It's tough to date, but the events that we are talking about in the book of Daniel are very clear because that has to do with the exile of Judah again. Same kind of theme that Jeremiah was coming and then Ezekiel. Again, this is this is Daniel and his eyewitness kind of accounts of what's going on now in Babylon after the exile. And so somewhere around 600, Daniel was probably one of the earlier waves. Remember, there were a couple waves of exile from Babylon from uh, Judah to Babylon. And so, yeah, somewhere around there, there's also a ton of history in Daniel intermingled with actual empires and, you know, kings' names and things that just got finished uh, teaching our unit in history to the eighth graders at Sussex. And so when we talk about proving the Bible, we talk about internal evidence, we talk about external evidence. Daniel's a great reference for external evidence because you have real names of real rulers and real kingdoms and things that you can go to external history books and be like, oh, yeah. That guy really did exist, and here he is. So a lot of names, a lot of kingdoms, a lot of other things that are happening. There are, of course, scholars just like who will argue with the uh, authorship of Daniel. They will argue with the date of Daniel. Some people will place it much later, uh, even around like the 160s BC. Um, I, I don't know really how they get that, but they're, just so you know, there's not uniform understanding of the date of writing. There's definitely a uniform date of the events that are happening to Israel. So as far as a genre type of literature, we're talking about prophecy here. We're talking about apocalyptic stuff here. Uh, again, we're talking about historical narrative, real events that really happen to real kingdoms. And in the redemptive context, we're talking about, again, as we have been for the last two other books, Exactly, of, of Israel being judged for their rebellion of God, their idolatry, and now this is, again, real-time, them walking through the consequences of that in exile in, uh, in Babylon. So that's kind of a little intro, and uh, I still hear footsteps downstairs, so maybe somebody's making their way upstairs. Yeah. Stephen. Stephen. And Stephen said he wasn't coming tonight. He? Yeah, he was probably lying. Yeah, he, he lied. was lying. He was definitely lying. The plan was always to come. The plan was there always to come. On our way out of my house, he said, We were waiting for you. Hello, Steve. <laughs> if that really is your name, you we can trust anything yeah, you say lost. now. <laughs> yeah, was, I got turned around. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. It's tough to navigate. But thanks for coming to look for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, Sharon's coming. I don't know if she knows to come up here. So oh, oh, she's been here. I know she's here. Huh? No. 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 All right. Oh, oh. Noel. Oh, okay. Well, we have an eight-minute and fifty-three-second video. Wow. A long movie. Wow. A long movie wow. tonight. Update in progress. Update in progress. Update in progress. <laughs> As always. Uh huh. 
Yeah. Mac would never do that to you. It's a remote. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Except on Sunday mornings. Except on Sunday mornings. <laughs> exactly. Is it done yet? Oh, good. It's done now. Okay, let me see. Let's mirror this over here. Shazam. Any second now. Shazam. I will then put this on the live stream. There we go. Shazam. We'll go full screen here just for your viewing pleasure. Is everybody ready? Yeah. Get your popcorn. Everything ready to go? Oh, I forgot my popcorn. The Book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David. Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and To bed we go. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and that puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends, who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king, who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. 
So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted, because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts, and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament, and there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. 
We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense, they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Wow. That's it. That's it, too. That's it. Stop trying to play guitar solo. Stop stuff. trying to play guitar no, solo. This isn't hype. Oh, this isn't a joke. Listen, this on, Ron? The past 16 years as a professional guitarist and as a teacher to over a stop, million stop. students online, stop. I've seen it all. Uh, I've seen too much. What? I've seen too much. Okay. Let us then put this back here. Okay. We're good. Alrighty. So yeah, I thought that was a very, very helpful overview of the book of Daniel. Um, we are going to get through as much as we can in the book of Daniel tonight. So if you do have your Bibles, head over there. And so starting in chapter 1, again, these are events uh, that we know for a fact when these sort of things happen, what's kind of influx is when Daniel wrote down these events and recorded them, we really don't have any reason to doubt that they did take place shortly after or around the time that they actually were happening. So we see Daniel saying in the third year, starting in chapter one, of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, hello there, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave king Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
the king assigned them daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So just, I read that just to kind of set the foundation of what's going on. So Daniel is in uh, Babylon, right? And he gets kind of in this inner circle of this inner, I guess, cohort of people that are getting trained in the Babylonian ways. And they give them food to eat, and they give them wine to drink, they give them Babylonian names. And so, you know, they're forced to kind of immerse themselves in this Babylonian culture, Right? What's the problem of a Jew being immersed in Babylonian culture? Or what are some problems with a Jew being immersed in Babylonian culture? They're not going to be able to follow the Jewish laws. <laughs> yeah, like maybe what's one of the first things that comes to mind? Food. Food laws. Unclean, unclean environment. Yep, unclean environment. Yep. Yeah. Never mind, you got no temple anywhere and you got no priests and all those other things. But so one of the first problems is food, right? And so in verse 8, it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food nor the wine that he drank. And he goes on to say, therefore, he pulls the guy aside and says, hey, give us fruits and vegetables. And the guy's like, well, I don't know about that. You'll probably, you know, look weak and probably fall behind in your work. And Daniel says, go to give us a test. For like 10 days, just let us eat fruits and vegetables and see how we do. And of course, he turns yeah. out that he was stronger and better than any of the other people in their little cohort, which has led some people to create such things as the Daniel fast. Yeah. <laughs> it's just fruits and vegetables or something like that. So. It makes you wonder what was wrong with the meat then, you know? Yeah, like, it's like, why? Besides the fact that it was probably all, you know, pork products and other things that they couldn't eat, but... Yeah, well, no, but and it wasn't like, prepared. why, like, why, other than God's blessing over them? Yeah. God, God uses science and health and practical yep. means. Yep. So, like, what was wrong with all the other young men who right. were eating True. meat? That's what I'm saying. Gotcha. Not, not, just, not kosher-wise. Yeah yeah. 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 So that the fact that they weren't on a high-protein diet, right, they yeah. still looked better than mm -hmm. the other people who were. Yeah, it's a good so point. something in the pig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we see something that we can pick up here in application, right? What do we see... In verse 8, you see the resolve of, of Daniel, right? He would not defile himself with the king's food, right? He took a stand. Yeah. Think about how scary that is. Like, you're thousands of miles from home. Like, you're being given food. Let's say, I'm alive. Uh, a lot of other people aren't, right? I'm being fed. I'm being cared for. I have a job. I have shelter, right? And am I still going to really be that? detailed about God's law that I'm not going to eat the food they put in front of me and Daniel says yes as yeah. much as he can he's going to honor God right? he's not going to be able to follow all of the law but as much as he can what he can control he's going to follow God and that's just a good thing to pick up in application as we start you know the resolve of Daniel and do we have some of that resolve where as much as we can as we're exiles in a foreign land are we still going to follow God and still going to, as Frank said, take a stand, right, in that. Um, 
King Nebuchadnezzar is on the throne in Babylon. He has a dream in chapter 2. And uh, the funny thing is, he wants people to interpret the dream, but he doesn't tell them what the dream is. That's part of the test. So he goes to all his wise men and says, tell me the dream and tell me what it means. And of course they say, uh, that's, that's not how this works, boss. Usually you tell us what was in the dream and then we tell you what it means. And he's like, well, that's not the way it's going to work today. You're going to tell me the dream and then you're going to tell me what it means. Right? Of course, these guys are completely freaked out saying no one could ever do this. Right? But along comes Daniel. Look in verse 12 of chapter 2. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. He's like, guess what? You can't tell me what I want to hear. You're all dead. How about that? And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of this king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show him the interpretation of the king, or of the dream to the king. What else do we see about Daniel here? So first we see he's resolved not to defile himself with food, right? Now what do we see here about Daniel? Well, he's wise for one thing because they're going to kill him. True. He's right. kind of got nothing. To, I never knew really think about that. <laughs> yeah. He's kind of got nothing to lose. Right. He's got nothing to lose. That's, yep. that's true. Yep. But he does go in to the king, right? Mm-hmm. A certain amount of boldness in that. Yeah. And he even goes into the king and says, all right, let's do this. What's it look like? Tomorrow, maybe one o'clock. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you this. Let's set up a time and I'll tell you. Right. What do you think the next thing that should be done after such a bold proclamation. Where his life and the life of his friends and many other Run strangers. Scream and shout. <laughs> That's right. Complete <laughs> panic. Complete panic. Yes. I would say he got on his knees. He did. Yep. He did. Yeah. So verse 17, Daniel went to his house. But that's not what we would think. No, that's, I would be like, what did I just say? Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to his friends, told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I always wonder, like, did they actually whack a couple of wise men in Babylon before this all went out? Or like, I think they probably did, but that's speculation. So yes, the first response is Daniel prays. He calls his people and they pray. And is that our first response too? Like when we're faced, first, are we that bold? And second of all, when we're faced with a crisis, do we panic or do we pray? And Daniel, you're sure he was freaking out on the inside. But he shows boldness, and then he prays. And it was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and we see this glorious praise of Daniel. Uh, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong all wisdom and might. And of course, you think about that, it's like, well, of course I'm going to ask God, because he's the one who has all wisdom to begin with. I need wisdom. Let me ask the source of wisdom. 
He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. And you can continue to read that, just his, his praise for God. So Daniel does go in to see the king. And he actually tells him not only what the dream was, but what the dream meant. Right? So this is kind of the first. Remember the movie said that there's a parallel to this dream in chapter 7. This is the first uh, instance of this dream in chapter 2. If we look at verse 31, King, behold, a great image. This is what you saw. You saw, O king, this is what was in your dream. Mighty and exceeding brightness stood before you, this image. Its appearance was frightening. The head, it was the image of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, I love this, he's telling him what he saw. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. The iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff. Right? So he goes on. So that's the first part of the dream, right? He says, this is, this is what you saw, right? So there's a, a main kind of interpretations that talk about what these parts of this statue or image are. They didn't talk about it in the movie, but most people would say that they represent empires that are around in that time, right? Most scholars come down that the gold part of the statue represents Babylon. The silver part represents the Medo persian Empire. The bronze represents Greece. And then the iron and clay represent Rome. But then we have this stone that comes in and smashes all the empires and then makes a mountain of all of the pieces. And so if we skip down a little bit, um, maybe in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So Daniel says at the end, guess what? There's another kingdom that's going to come out of this. And it's the one that broke all of those other kingdoms apart and smashed them into pieces. So theoretically, this other kingdom is this rock that comes and destroys all of the other kingdoms. But he also says, in the days of those kings, right? So there's something super cool that lines up with this. And most guys, and I would be in that camp, say that this is pointing to the fact that there's going to be another kingdom that will rise up at the time of those kingdoms, which take the last kingdom, which would be Rome. At the time of Rome, there will be another kingdom that will rise up and will smash all of those other kingdoms eventually. What does our Lord and Savior say when he arrives on the scene? What does he talk about several times? What does he announce is happening? Yeah. Kingdom. The kingdom of God. Yeah. Like Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so many people think like this points to Jesus coming and the fulfillment of that and saying, guess what? Here's the kingdom. How many times did Jesus mention the kingdom in, in Matthew? All over the Gospels, of yeah. course. But just to see that, like, yeah, okay, this, this harkens back. Like you would think that people who know their uh, 
Old Testament, right? Yeah. When he starts dropping words like kingdom, they're starting to think about Daniel. And they're starting to think about stuff like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Yep. Uh, on yeah, that's good. Yeah. And, and of course, you talk about a kingdom that will never end, never be destroyed, mm-hmm. and that will destroy all other kingdoms. Right? And that lines up with God's eternal kingdom as well. So, just a really cool thing. And the rock of our salvation. And, yeah. You know, all of those things, the rock. Yeah. The cornerstone. The rock of ages. Yeah, rock of ages. <laughs> it's a great those. song. Yeah. No. Oh, not the hymn. That's such a good hymn. <laughs> I was talking about the one by Def Leppard. <clears throat> anyway. Listen to the one by James Ward. Like who? James Ward. James Ward? Ward. Ward, okay. Cool. In your pastoral opinion. In my pastoral opinion. At what point in all of this very specific detail, would you have lost your mind of someone telling you about your dream? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Probably right when he started telling me what I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the ultimate mic drop in the Bible. Yeah. The fact that... He doesn't even need to interpret it at that point. Yeah. I just, I think about that. The chutzpah, right, that that Daniel had. All the other wise men are fleeing for their lives, like, we're not even going to try this. And then Daniel's like, I got it. Well, God's got it, right? And he just wanders in and starts talking. Do you think Daniel, for a second, was like, you saw a image, <laughs> right? I'm getting there. <laughs> like, he thinks, like, the first wrong thing he said, like, his head is coming off. So he's just waiting, but yeah. It's, it's, so he had faith. He sure did. Yeah. Well. He sure did. So for this, he is promoted. Um, and of course, God is seen as who he is. We saw that time and time again in Ezekiel. So that they will know that I am the Lord. Right. 47, the king answered him, Truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so he promotes him, makes him prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a moment of complete and total pride, makes a giant statue of his favorite idol. Himself. Right? Or of himself, yes. <laughs> and he makes this proclamation that says, whenever you hear the music playing, you have to drop down and worship my wonderful statue. And if you don't, you're dead. I made this special furnace that I will throw people in if you do not worship my giant statue, right? And and we see, uh, of course, huge pride, right? Remember in the movie, it was talking about the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and the pride of um, his son who takes his place, uh, Belshazzar, yeah, right? So we see pride, but also, can a Jew worship an image? No. We just learned that. Can a Jew worship something that's not God? Yeah, can a Jew worship anything? No. So he's going to blow like commandments 1, 2, and 3 if he does this, right? So there's no way. There's no way Daniel's going to. But they do it anyway. Well, they do it. I mean, the Babylonians do. Yeah, but But Daniel does not. Because Daniel's like, there's no way that this is going to happen, right? So, and his friends also. Are, are trusty Jews, right? They do not 
faithful Jewish people, they do not worship, right? Um, and so it gets found out. They play the music. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not uh, worship this golden image, right? Of course, Nebuchadnezzar finds out in furious rage, says, guess what, guys? You're getting a one-way ticket to the furnace. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. <laughs> I know you're freaking out right now, but we don't care. Like, we, there's still no way we're worshiping this giant statue, right? If this be so, like, in other words, if you're really going to do this, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Watch this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve you or your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Talk about chutzpah. Mm -hmm. Right? They had faith. That was good. Yeah. Talk about resolve. Talk about integrity. Right? And look at this prayer. Like, how often do we pray? Like, we're great at praying the first part of this prayer. Like, <laughs> God, please deliver us from this trial. Yeah. Amen. But how often do we finish that prayer with, but if not? Right? But if you're not going to deliver me from this trial, if you're not going to heal that person, if you're not going to get me out of this mess, if you're not going to do what I ask you to do. I will right? be done. Yeah. It has nothing to do with a reflection on God's faithfulness or lack of faithfulness at all. He says, but if not, make sure you realize, King, that we will never serve you. We will never bow down to these idols. Right? Do we have anywhere close to this sort of faith? Anywhere short of this resolve? Anywhere short of this, this uh, integrity to be able to say that? Like, this guy's about to murder them. <laughs> so even you know you could ask it like do we have that kind of faith that we would die for our faith that's what they do they don't know I mean they're going to be thrown into the furnace right imagine him he lost yeah. his mind yeah I mean you know oh yeah. boy verse 19 then he was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed which is Hebrew for he got super ticked at that point he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. He had that workout. <laughs> yep. Killed the soldiers. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so he throws them in there, and he looks in the fiery furnace, and he says, um, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, Yep. Well, Is that what it says in the... Uh-huh. Yeah, it's in Hebrew. That's actually Aramaic by this point. You're right. Yeah. Very good. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound and walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like one of the son of the gods. Right. Who is this fourth man? Jesus. Ron Vreeland is wherever he is, is screaming. It's a Christophany. I think it could be. Could be. doesn't say wow. for sure. Certainly could be. Angel. Could be a pre-incarnate uh, image of Jesus. Could be an angel. Could be, yeah. Could be either of those things. Right? Nebuchadnezzar comes near to the door of the fiery furnace, and he declared again, like once again, in uh, 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, 
rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Right? Again, what do we see the reaction is from the king, the person in authority? He knows who did this. He knows it was God, and he gives praise to God. Doesn't necessarily mean he comes to faith in God, but at that moment, yeah. he understands. Right? Pretty intense, boy. Craziness, right? Nebuchadnezzar then has a moment of spiritual high. He writes a little song, a little worship song. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, right? He sees this, then he has another dream about a tree and a guy who comes down and chop, chops down the tree. And then he goes to Daniel once again and says, okay, I dream, tell me what it was. And Daniel interprets the dream. And Daniel basically says, hey, king, this is what your dream means this time. Uh, knock it off. Like, stop <coughs> sinning. Stop being so prideful. He says, um, you'll note that the stump after the tree has been cut down has been left. So the Lord's not going to make a total end to you. But you are going to be humbled if you don't repent. And he says in verse 25, You will be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox. And you'll be wet with the dew of heaven. He says, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. 27, therefore, O king, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and let your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed or and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. There may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Right? What would be one of the things that uh, Nebuchadnezzar could do to demonstrate repentance? Just a little thing, you know. Think about maybe what he what he just made a little while ago. Yeah, he could knock down his giant idol statue and have people stop worshiping it. Right? Stop killing people. Stop killing people. <laughs> Always a good resolution. Coming up this Sunday at Highlands Bible Church, Sixth Commandment: Thou shalt not kill. Stop killing people. Stop killing people. Always a good New Year's resolution. <laughs> He unfortunately does not do that. You're going to stop? Carol's resolved? All right, Carol. Sorry, I was going to kill my sister this year. Comes to our mind, right? Doesn't happen. Maybe he thinks about it, but for a year, a year later, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace, and the king says, Who's this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence in the glory of my majesty? Look at my awesomeness in this wonderful palace. Sounds like Babel. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king, to you as it's spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And guess what? You're gonna everything that Daniel told you is gonna happen. You're gonna be driven from men, you're gonna be with the beast, you're gonna go insane, you're gonna eat grass on your on all fours, and it exactly happens. He turns mad, right? Nebuchadnezzar eventually gets restored. He gives us a little preview of that in chapter four. But before that. We kind of have a flash in the middle of what's happening while he's insane. In chapter 5, King Belshazzar, who took Nebuchadnezzar's place while he was uh, temporarily crazy and on a strict grass diet, right? 
Belshazzar tasted the wine and commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and they all might drink from them. So uh, Belshazzar is having a big party, having a big feast, and he's drinking wine, probably getting a little tipsy by this point, and says, hey, you know what would be super fun? If we took those awesome cups that we stole from the Jews when we bulldozed Mm -hmm. their city, that they were the sacred cups that they used, you know, in the back. Like, that would be awesome to drink out of. And so they went and then got them, right? They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. And immediately, fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. I remember when we went out to Sight and Sound 100 years ago when the kids were little, we saw the production of Daniel. Remember that? The hand comes out of nowhere. Ominous music plays and the stage darkens and turns red and you just see the the writing on the wall. It was actually pretty cool. I was always wondering how they got the giant hand to write stuff. Was it just me and Mikey? Oh yeah. We didn't want to scare little Mikey. Five-year-old Mikey. Five-year-old Mikey. So he writes, the handwriting is on the wall. Right? Just like one of our common expressions that we have here, even today, in, in our vocabulary. Handwriting being on the wall, that this is not going to go well for you. Right? King's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and declared, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation, this guy, and is now his replacement guy, always looking for interpretations. <laughs> Come on, figure this stuff out yourself. They said, we close. They're going to be treated royally. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make it known to the king. The king was greatly alarmed, right? The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall and declared, O king, live forever. Let your thoughts not alarm you or let your color change. Let your knees not knock together. Just calm down. There is a man in the kingdom who this kind of thing he's good at. Right? He's done this a couple times before. If you look in the king history books, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar had a few things that he didn't understand, and this guy figured it out. So Daniel is called to show the interpretation, and Daniel interprets the handwriting. Um, let's jump down to 24. From his presence, the hand was sent. Right? This is from God's presence. And the writing was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. And the interpretation is many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, that has, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and celebrated. But that very night... Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So this happens instantaneously, right? Handwriting's on the wall, and his kingdom is then taken from him. Wow. We see Darius the Mede. Full disclosure, no people have really been able to figure out who the heck Darius the Mede is, because there's a couple things that don't line up history-wise, right? But, and they've never been able to find him in any other extra-biblical writings or any other history books, but it doesn't, it's just an argument from, from silence. It doesn't mean he didn't exist. But if you go poking around in this, you're going to find lots of shoulders that are shrugging like that. 
we can't find evidence of this guy anywhere else. But that doesn't mean he didn't exist. We do see that he's, he's the Mede. So we know that the, the Persian Empire now included the Medes. And so now they're becoming one empire. That's why it's the Medo-Persian Empire. And so now we see, guess what? Babylon starting to then fade in world history and the Medo-Persian Empire starting to come in and starting to come in pretty much right here in some of the land that they took over, right? So we see massive interplay of kings and kingdoms and other things that are happening here. All right, how are we doing on time? Wow, okay. Why don't we see if we can get through chapter six? Daniel in the lion's den. All right, so it pleased Darius to set up, right? So Darius is in charge now. He sets up 120 satraps or officials to be throughout the whole kingdom. And Daniel was one of the high officials, right? Everybody starts to hate Daniel, of course. Verse 5 says, these men said who are trying to frame him, Guess what? We're not going to find any ground for any complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel's the perfect employee. He's the model worker. They're not going to get him on any technicalities, any personnel issues, any policies and procedures. He said the only thing we're going to be able to get this guy on is the law of his God, which conflicts, of course, with the law of our culture. So if we can trap yes. him, right, we can get him. And so they come up with this plan... And they still do that today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they still do that today, right? But also, in application, too, that should be us, right? Yeah. Like we should be blameless in everything that we're doing, right? The only thing that they're going to get us on is if there's a difference in what they're calling us to, and if God calls us to something, and it's sin, and we don't do it. Mm. Yeah, so the high officials and, and satraps, they made this agreement, Um Whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O King Darius, shall be cast into the den of lions. Right? Here's a great idea. We're going to figure this out. We should just pray to King Darius, and if somebody doesn't pray to King Darius, then we have this den of lions set up, and then we throw them in there. And so we know that Daniel prays to his god. And so if we catch him praying to his god instead of King Darius, then we got him. So that was the trap. Daniel knew that this had been signed, that this was a thing. And what's the first thing that he does in verse 10? He went to his house where he had, been, had windows in his open chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks before he got for his God as he had done previously. He's yeah. like, guess what? Once three times a three day. Three times a day. Yep. Time to pray. <laughs> Kicks open once. the windows. It's like, take it all in, boys. Here I am. They still do that today. Yeah. Wherever they are, if they're in an airport, doesn't matter. They will, they'll do it. So yeah, so this is what he does. And he does it with great boldness. Again, Daniel, very, very bold in this. Right? The king, however, loved Daniel. Maybe he had a little attachment to Daniel because he helped him out, right, with that whole interpretation or you know, all that, right? So there's a little dilemma here because the king has to punish Daniel because the law has been written, but then he doesn't want to punish Daniel because he wants to redeem Daniel, 
In that is, is a little picture of the gospel in application because we realize God is holy. God has to punish us. God has to treat us as sin deserves to be treated. But it's not like he has any pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? And for his people, what does he do then? He substitutes Jesus Christ to take the penalty of the law, right? It's a really good parallel here, taking the penalty of the law for us so that then we could go free, right? So it's a good little parallel of the, um, of the gospel. And so you guys know it's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Daniel indeed gets thrown into the den of lions, and God shuts the mouths of the lions, and Daniel is completely spared and saved from the lions. Darius is up all night worrying about his buddy Daniel. In verse 19, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you've served continually, has he been able to deliver you from the den of lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they've not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, <coughs> O king, I have done no harm. King is exceedingly glad, lifts Daniel out of the lion's den, and then he figures out that this whole thing was a big ruse anyway and a big trap. And he commands that all those who had done this and even their children and their wives were thrown into the den of lions. And before they even reached the bottom of the den of lions, they were torn to pieces, or the word says they broke all their bones into pieces. Wow. King Darius wrote to the peoples, and he writes a praise, right? I made a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are, are, are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thoughts, reflections on this famous account of Daniel and the lion's den. Prophecy was fulfilled with Jesus. Yeah. Yep. We see uh, Daniel being spared. Definitely, like we are spared from our sins. Yep. Anything else? His trust in God was exorbitant. Yeah. And it translated to actual real boldness, right? Yeah, it's not just uh, uh, emotional trust, right? It's actually, it gets translated to action. Just like his friends just got thrown into the fiery furnace. Now Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, right? And I think it's healthy for us to think about that. Yeah. Odds are, as Americans, we probably won't face the, such a time where we have to make up our mind about our faith or die. But that does happen every single day around the world. Okay. Happens, you know, if you're in the 1040 window, it happens if you're in Afghanistan or anything like that, or Iran, North Korea, right? these things happen. Um, but it's good for us to remember the persecuted church in that way. But it's also good for us to think, if that ever did happen... Would I be as bold as Daniel in this situation? Any other New Testament scriptures come to mind when we think about 
maybe the boldness in that day. Mm-hmm. Let me consult, consult the Google concordance for the one I'm thinking about. Yeah, Stephen. Stephen? Stephen, the next seven. Is that? Yep. Stephen being martyred? Yep. Stephen being martyred. Yeah. Yeah, we just read that mm-hmm. in the men's Bible study. Yeah, the boldness of that, right? He preaches that amazing sermon, riles them all up. He's like, he's got to be thinking, like, this is the polar opposite of what they want to hear. They're going to be very angry that I tell them this. Mm-hmm. How many times does he say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah? You remember Jesus, right? The one you crucified? <laughs> Yeah. That Jesus. And then he says, yeah, yeah, he looks yeah. up and he sees him sitting at the yeah. right hand of the Father. And, yeah. 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 Moses standing in front of Pharaoh. You know, Let my people go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, there's a trust, but there's certainly not a trust and a boldness, right, in and of ourselves. And, in, and it's not in Daniel as well. Um, and of course, Jesus standing in front of uh, Pilate. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great one. Amazing. I thought of, um, you know, Jesus talking about maybe the signs of the end of the age and uh, if we're persecuted, right? Um, Mark thirteen eleven. when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, mm-hmm. but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea that we are continuing to trust even to the very end. And we don't know if the Lord will deliver us or not. Um, but yeah, we entrust ourselves to the Holy Spirit in that. Wasn't that in the Voice of the Martyrs? Yeah. That we watched that one testimony? Yeah. Of, you know, the guy who was literally about to be killed, and he said this is the verse that the Lord kept yeah. bringing to mind, and he literally gave him the thing, words to say Yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And then he killed yeah. So it's good to think about that. It's good to be emboldened in the faith, but it's good to think about, you know, there are testimonies all throughout Scripture of this yeah. for us, to, for our encouragement. Peter in front of the Sanhedrin, another one. Right? Yep. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, yep. John the Baptist, it unfortunately did cost him his life. So many. Yep. Okie dokie. So in two weeks, we'll pick up with chapter seven. No midweek next week. What? I'm traveling. (laughs) Traveling? Going to a conference. What do you want to teach, Steve? Yeah. You want to take over chapter seven? You can. Steve did great at Bible study. Yeah, bring it on. Whoa. All right, we'll talk tomorrow. Okay. Have oh, are you having lunch tomorrow? Uh, yeah, I think so. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm good to have lunch. Good, good. Yeah, me too. I really, I never miss it. Except the last four weeks in a row. Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for these people that come out to hear of you, and the people that are online with us. Lord, we pray that you will help us, Father. We, we read these stories from uh, thousands of years ago, and we try and understand the context and these world powers, these kingdoms that are in play here, Lord, but really in the middle, um, at the forefront, are people who fear you and follow you and believe in you and boldly trust in you. 
And so I pray that that would be us, that we would be followers of you, even from the very beginning and the very small things where Daniel refused uh, to break your law, even with the food that he ate, and especially who he would worship. We pray, Lord, that we have that awareness and that boldness and that trust that works its way out in actions, Lord. We thank you so much that you are sovereign over all kingdoms, over all rulers. And so we pray that as we continue to walk out our faith here in New Jersey, we thank you for the freedom that we experience and we acknowledge that there are many brothers and sisters around the world who don't have this freedom. And we pray that you would embolden them and bring them much fruit from their churches. We pray for us, Lord, that we would not get too complacent, that we would continue to have an awareness of you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray that you would use us in your kingdom to further your name and your renown. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.